0: Uh, more information on that. For most of us, if not all of us, the passage that you heard read during the scripture reading, you recognize as part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus brings in two metaphors that clearly establish what a Christian ought to be about. And while for us it breathes familiarity to the disciples in the crowd who were standing there, and sitting, listening to Jesus, it brought about a new and radical way. It brought on a radical new identity to those who were listening. For you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And before we really get into what it would mean for them and in turn for us, it's important for us to note directly what precedes that statement. You are light of the world. You are salt of the earth. Look in verses 11 and 12. It says, blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, as Jesus gets to this part in his sermon, he starts noticing their puzzled faces. The Beatitudes threw them in for a loop, and you'll talk more about that in your classes. Now, when I am persecuted, I am to do what? I am to rejoice? They begin murmuring to one another, how are we supposed to do that? Why in the world would we do that? But Jesus, reading their minds, gives them their identity of what it means to follow Christ. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? For it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, and a town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone that is in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may praise your good deeds, see your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. You see, it's when life gets tough. It's when we are at the end of our rope. It's when people treat us like dirt. It's when you want nothing more than to hold back forgiveness or lash out in anger. It's when sin is knocking at your door and you want to invite him in. Life is not going as planned. And Jesus reminds those who are listening and he reminds us today that you are salt and you are light. The best opportunity that you have that I have to prove your allegiance to Christ To prove that you bring some flavor into this world, that you are able to shine bright, is in the face of persecution. It's in the face of opposition. It's when things are not going well. You see, because salt and light, they work best when the world around us is a tasteless and dark void. It's when things get hard that we have the opportunity to prove who our allegiance is to and to show off our identity that we belong to Christ. I've seen it where people will sit in the pews or sit in the chairs for 20 years. They listen to countless sermons, they participate in all the activities, but when the tough gets tough they call it quits and they start making decisions not through the Spirit but through selfishness. And in my mind I think man what an opportunity that you missed to show how committed that you are as a disciple. I recall a woman who had been wronged by her husband. He lived in a different state because of work. And as it sometimes happens, he found another woman while living in a different state and eventually they got divorced. But I remember her sitting in my office detailing how wrong he had been and what her next move was going to be. She spent so much time talking about how wrong he had been But you could tell that it was really to justify what it was that she was about to do, her current plan. And she looked at me and she said, I'm going to move to a different state and I'm going to live with my current boyfriend. And before I could get any words out, she blurted, yes, I'm going to live in sin. I was young. I didn't know what to do. What a misstep that would be for a disciple who seeks to be salt and light in a time that is dark. And while my misstep is not the same as hers, I would be foolish to think I don't at times justify my own missteps and justify my own actions where I begin to react a whole lot like what the world would and not like what Jesus calls me to. In the past when I have read this passage, I've taken the word salt and light, as I'm sure you have done, I've written down every single function that I think of that I know they do. Because if Jesus is going to call me salt, if he is going to call me light, and this is my identity, I want to know what I ought to be doing, right? Light. It illuminates. It brings about that which is hidden. It takes away the darkness. It's essential for life. It shows us where we need to go. Salt, what does it do? It preserves. I no longer... Back then... um, it preserves, right? They didn't have refrigerators, so that's what they used. Salt was required in all the sacrifices. What does salt do? It brings out flavors. You get fries with no salt. What do you ask for? Can I have a little bit of salt? Because you want to enjoy it as much as possible. And when you talk about salt, there's actually some debate on what Jesus has in mind here in this passage. With light, I believe it's pretty clear. Uh, But with salt... Some say he's thinking uh, of his disciples as preserving the world from decay, while others believe the function of a disciple is to bring out flavor to the divine taste. And the truth is, plausible arguments can be made for each of these associations explaining the present salt metaphor. But I believe that to emphasize a single association is to surpass the text itself and to allegorize it. So I don't want to spend time this morning doing that. I believe Jesus had some of these things in mind when he was talking to the crowd, but I think the number one thing that he wanted them to understand and that I want you to understand this morning is that you are indispensable. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know how essential salt and light would be in the life of Jesus' hearers back in that day. Didn't take a rocket scientist to know how essential it is for those things now, and what Jesus was telling his disciples, and I believe in turn he's telling us is you are vitally significant, you are important, and you are necessary to the world in your witness to God, and His kingdom. Commentator I was reading this week put it this way: He said Jesus indicates with this metaphor that his disciples themselves, you are the salt, are necessary for the welfare of the world. That is, the disciples have experienced a transformation in their lives as they have come into contact with the kingdom of heaven. You are now different from the people of this earth, and their presence is necessary, and your presence is necessary as God's means of influencing the world for for good. What did Jesus say? He says, I have come as the true light, and when I am gone, you are going to be the light that sticks around. I mean, if you look at John eight twelve, can we just marvel at the fact that Jesus calls himself the light? When he spoke, he said, I am the light of the... Some of you are tracking with me. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says this about himself, and then he gives us the same title. He says, you are the light of the world. You see, God grafted this plan in which he has brought us and continues to bring about salvation, and he chooses you and I to be a part of it. Not because he can't accomplish his means without us, but because he chooses to use us in a way that does not allow us to stand back and watch, but draws us further into a relationship with him because he gives us perfect. Because he gives us purpose, excuse me. He doesn't want us to sit back and watch him do all the work. He draws us in, I am the light of the world, and then he says, now you are the light of the world that gets to stick around. Point them to me. In fact, if you looked at your bulletin at the very front, it says Glen Allen Church Christ, and underneath it, what does it say? To be the light of Christ, united in love. For that is our mission statement. To be the light of Christ. It's taking seriously what Jesus says about who we are as disciples. To be the light of Christ, united in love. We are indispensable. We're necessary, not because of what we do, but because of who we are, the identity that he gives us. For our being proceeds our doing. And that's why he uses the rest of chapter 5, going all the way through chapter 7, to walk us through. This is how salt acts like salt, and this is how light acts like light. You see, it's not just loving your brothers, but your enemies as well. Being salt and light is more than just don't kill someone, but don't even say anything bad about them, especially your brother or your sister in Christ. It's more than just not touching someone inappropriately. It's not looking at them in a way and thinking about them in ways that you know that you should not. It's being a person of integrity, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, no matter what the cost is. It's looking inward at your own failures before pointing out the failures of others, for this is what salt looks like. This is what the light of the world looks like. And some of us, and I'll put myself in this category, some of us, when we look in the mirror, we see the flaws and we wonder why God created us the way that he did. Or he put us in the situation that we find ourselves in and we begin to question everything. When really, when we look in the mirror, we need to see how necessary we are in the plan that God has for us. For you are salt. For you are light. You are what this world, you are what the people who are around you on a day-to-day basis need. Why? Because you Have the ability to point them toward God. I have set you apart, and I've made you unique, and I've made you distinct. And it would be easy for us to think that because I'm absolutely necessary for this function, I can do whatever it is that I want. But there's a warning in there we can lose our distinctiveness. We can become disposable. It's the warning that he gives. Because I'm necessary, I can do what I want. We've seen athletes do this all the time, right? Uh, They know they're the best in the world, and so they do what it is that they want. Because their organization can't afford to lose them. And when we begin to get a big head and start to think of ourselves in this way, Jesus says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? For it's no longer good for anything except to be trampled by men. Neither do people light it, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Jesus gives the disciples a word of caution. Though you are indispensable, though you are necessary, you can become disposable. You may be thinking, well, Chris, how does that happen? And this doesn't sound all that great of a thing, but the way that we become disposable is by losing our distinction. It got me to thinking about the royal wedding. Uh, It was big. Katie and I had gotten married right around the time when uh, Princess Kate and William got married. It was all over the news. And if you were to watch the event, or you were to look at pictures, you would see all the women who were there in impressive hats, all sorts of different kinds of hats. And if we had a screen, I'd show you all the cool hats. Maybe I'd wear one myself. (laughs) But royal protocol, all right, the reason that they do it, royal protocol dictates that the women must wear hats to all official occasions. It's a stipulation that dates back to before the 1950s when upper class and royal women rarely showed their hair in public. That is according to the BBC. Times have obviously changed since then, but the royal family is often responsible for preserving traditions that have faded out of style in every other context, like curtsying, to set them apart from everything else. In the article that I read says, there has to be a slight differentiation between the royal family and us regular folk, Victoria Arbiter told Insider, not in an arrogant way, but what's the point in the royal family if they are just like us? And I think Jesus would take that a step further. He's not settling just for a slight differentiation between us and the world, between his people and regular folk. He wants radically changed lives that permeate through everything that we do not just wearing fancy hats to a special occasion but having their hats noticed in every walk of life and everything that we do where people can look at us and say you know I think they belong to him who is the way Paul speaking to the crowd in Athens in Acts chapter 17 verse 28 he would say for in him we live and move we have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring as we walk through this life as we engage the people around us can we say in Christ we live in Christ we move and he is my everything I have my being all wrapped up in him and there's nothing that I can do that is apart from him let's be honest it is easier to change with the world than to change the world. It's easier. I don't think we can look at it in any other way than to say, yeah, that would be the easiest solution. And here's what I see that is happening. That as the world moves further away from God, by the way, that should be expected, that should not come as a surprise to us, but as the world moves further away from God, There are times that we as Christians tend to move in the same direction. However, we just keep an arm's length from the world. Let me try to show it to you this way. If the world, or if God was over here and the world is right here and the world is moving away from God, we just keep an arm's length. And in the end of the process, what do we find that we have done as well? We have distanced ourselves from God But according to the world, we are closer. We keep at an arm's length as we move further and further away from God. So not completely being like them, just enough difference. And what's Christ asking us to do? You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. You move in this direction, and as you can, you're pulling people from that world along with you. Why? Because you've permeated in such a way that you can make a difference, not only in your life, but in the life of others. As we move this way, Christ has a warning because we can lose our distinction, that which has set us apart. And our distinction is not an arm's length better than the world. Our distinction is Christ's spirit lives through me in everything. That I do. It lives through you. Christ's Spirit sets us apart. When we lose our distinction as disciples, we risk becoming disposable. Salt that is not salty, light that is under a bowl, because we have no idea what it takes to stand firm and can become experts at compromise. The word used there that is translated salt, loses its saltiness, is another word for foolishness. We become fools by thinking that what the world offers is better than what Jesus offers. And that simply is not true. You've heard the phrase, what harm will one little nibble do? It's okay, I'm just going to take a bite, just one bite. And in the end, we find that one bite led to many more, led to a whole consumption of things. When I'm on a diet and I do pretty well, as soon as I have that one piece that I shouldn't have, it like all goes downhill real quick. (laughs) What harm will one little nibble do? It threw me off completely. I think this is what the church in Revelation was doing. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he says this to the church, I know your deeds, for you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You see, they did not compromise their outward appearance to the world. They still did that which they were supposed to do, that which they thought was right. But what did they fail at? They failed at being, for their hearts were compromised. You're doing all the things you're supposed to do, but you are dead. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 9, he writes this, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing, increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. If you want to be someone who keeps your distinction, who continues to be salt and light, then we also need to tend to that which is on the inside of us. And we need to make every effort to add to those things because it's when we choose to just say, I'm good enough. I've been a Christian long enough. There's nothing to learn. I've heard this sermon before, which maybe you have. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've been a Christian long enough. I've heard this before. There's nothing else for me to learn. He says that's when you risk becoming ineffective and unproductive because there's always something that you can learn. There's always something that you can add. I look at the crowd here, and I see people of all sorts of ages. And we may look at the younger ones and the children and say, man, you have so much to learn. But I think in Christ, we can look at all of us and say, man, you have so much to learn. Why? Because Christ is that deep. Because there's so much to him that there's always something that can be gained. There's always something that we can achieve. We will not be perfected until we see his face. We are continually changed, continually molded, continually looking more and more like him. If you want to keep your distinction, Peter says, then you need to add these things into your life. Don't think that just because you are in Christ, you can now coast. Make every effort. The other way that we lose our distinction in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness, um, it's right after the passage of dealing with sin. Right? We all know the passage. When your eye causes you to sin, do what? Gouge it out. When your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. When your foot, sever it. And then he says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? One way we lose our distinction, our distinctiveness, is that we do not deal radically, as if we do not deal radically with sin. As if we do not take the very thing that makes us more like the world and say, we are going to do something with this. I'm gonna let the Spirit of Christ take care of this thing in my life, the very thing that brings and drags you down, you are at risk of losing your identity in Christ if it is not dealt with. You see, a mark of a believer is the hatred of sin and a healthy fear of what it can do to us. We must be people that when sin is creeping at our door, when sin is in our life, we're willing to deal with it severely. I think that's what Jesus was trying to say here. It's not about maiming ourselves. It's about seeing the seriousness of what it can do to our life. Because though we are salt, though we are light, when sin is present and we allow it to be and we feed it, we can lose our saltiness. We can lose our light. We need to be people who stand firm who are immovable, salt and light, do not give into the cultural and societal norms that are thrust upon them. Instead, they are not transformed by it, but they are transformed by the renewing of their minds. To stand firm is to add those things, as Second Peter said, but then to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we're continually looking more and more like Christ than more and more like the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, right after Paul declares that God gave us all victory through Jesus Christ, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of the victory that we have in Christ, he gives us the opportunity and the power to stand firm in that which we believe. Why? Because I'm holding on to the rock. I'm building my house on the rock that is immovable. In Matthew chapter 15, well, actually, we're going to... Matthew chapter 15, 5, verse 15 and 16. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and gives light to every one in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The reason that I deal radically with sin, the reason that I add those things to my faith that Second Peter talked about, the reason that I am salt and light is not because I will receive the glory, but it's because we want to point others to God. And then later in chapter 6, he gives them a warning, be careful not to practice your righteousness. Uh, in front of others just to be seen for if you do, you have no reward in heaven, right? There's this tension of the things that we do and are we doing it to glorify ourselves or are we doing it to glorify God? Our actions, our thoughts, our demeanor, our passions, our talents, our everything is always supposed to point to something greater than ourselves. You may think that salt, and light you have to do something crazy you have to do something just completely off the charts and radical in the name of Jesus and it may very be that but i think that as you read the sermon on the mound chapters 5 through 7 of matthew i think jesus makes it abundantly clear that being salt and being light is about the little things it's about the everyday life it's about what you do when you wake up in the morning and how you conduct yourself at work. And then though you're exhausted, it's how you treat your kids when they ask you to play or when they want to be around you. Salt and light is in every aspect of our lives. I have the tendency to just want to do the big things. And that's all I want to do. And Katie constantly has to say, but we need to focus on the little things too, you know. And she brings me back. Because if we can't do the little things, how do we expect God to work through the big things? Which I believe that he can and that he does. But salt and light, it's about your everyday life that permeates through the, permeates through you to make a change and to make a difference in those that you are around. And so I want you to know this morning that you As a disciple of Christ, you are absolutely necessary for the work in the kingdom of God. You are needed. Christ put it in a way where he gave you gifts, he gave you a personality, and you are to be a part of it. But there's also a warning where we can lose our distinction, and in that case, be thrown out and trampled by men. But I think when Christ gave us this identity and the implications of it, he knew that we could take it serious enough where we see both sides and we say, I want everything that Christ has in store for me and I don't want to lose my distinction. You are indispensable. You are necessary. Maybe for some of you this morning, it's just to be reminded of that and the work that God has in store for you to do. Maybe for some of you, you're not a disciple and you want to be salt and light. You want the difference that God can make through your life and then change your family and those who are around you. Either way, the message is the same. Christ came to change who we are. Christ came to put his spirits in us. Why? So that we can be in relationship with him, not just for now, but for eternity. And if for any reason that is appealing to you, if for any reason you want prayers to do that better, we would love nothing more than to do that as we stand and as we sing. Number S-51. Salvation belongs to our God.